You may be seated this morning, also going to dismiss our children downstairs. We trust God will continue His work in their lives as well. We'll let the chaos ensue. <laughs> it's awesome to hear the sound of children, though, isn't it? The context of the church, wonderful to hear. We started this series with a bold claim. It was a bold claim that came directly from the scriptures, and it was a claim that could be uh, held dear for those who know Jesus Christ. It was a claim that someday we would be face to face with the risen Christ. That someday he will return. That day is drawing near. Right from 1 John, we said this. When we see him, what? We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That day is fast approaching. But I think we can all admit uh, that uh, that day hasn't come. I humbly admit that we have not fully become like Jesus Christ yet. Thought I might get an amen to that, especially the wives sitting next to the husbands. Amen, preacher. We haven't made it yet, right? Right, hon? Not fully like Jesus yet. We're still on the journey. And the question really we've been asking is this, how do we prepare for that day? Or, or maybe to say it a different way, how are we going to get to that day where we stand before the one who is pure, the one who is righteous, the one who is holy? Well, last week, Jeremy began to answer that question. From uh, Corinthians, he taught us that it is the Holy Spirit that is actively at work in our lives to transform us from one degree of glory to another as we behold the truth about who Christ is the spirit of god is transforming us from one degree of glory to another well let me just be simple here the holy spirit is at work preparing us for the day that we stand before our risen savior that should reassure us that God is doing something to prepare us. God is changing us, progressively enabling us to become more like Jesus. And so what we do is knowing that it is the Spirit of God at work, we depend upon Him. We live lives as the followers of Jesus, as those who recognize that we don't have it in and of ourselves to become like Christ. We're weak, but because of the Spirit, He enables he empowers, and we progressively become like Christ. What an awesome thing. So is that it? Is there more for us to consider? The Spirit's doing it. All set. Just waiting for the day that Jesus comes back. Spirit's taking care of business. Is that it? Is there more to this equation? More to this understanding about sanctification. When I use that word, I'm simply meaning how we become more like Jesus, how we grow in our relationship with God. 
That's what that big word sanctification. It's an important word. We're not going to say, oh, we're not going to use those words anymore. Sanctification is an important word. What does it mean? We're progressively becoming like Jesus. We're growing in our relationship with God. There's more. And so today, without severing ourselves at all from the work of the Spirit, as if we're talking about something completely distinct from the work of the Spirit, knowing that the Spirit of God is at work, what more is there? We turn our attentions to uh, second, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So grab your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to just read a few verses. We'll talk a little bit about the context as well. Uh, to kind of get a, a fuller understanding. But we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, the elder, or at least one of the elders, at the church in Ephesus. So if you know the book of Ephesians, well, Timothy was one of the elders of the church at Ephesus. So he's writing to him, and he says this, verse 14, But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God, and all God's people said, Amen. Grass withers, the flowers fade, and the word of our God abides forever. Constant pressure applied to... Uh, finite people like us, constant pressure gives us, as it weakens us and continually opposes us, gives us temptation to quit. Yes, I have been hitting the gym. I'm back in my step a little bit. Well, you know, we get these like Tabata exercises going. I'm at like number six and the 205 pounds just applies pressure to my body and Doreen's laughing at me as she's next to me just hitting push-ups, and I quit. Face on the ground. The lady next to me is like, are you okay, sir? I'm fine. I'm just a wuss, and I'm quitting. Pressure applied to us causes us to at least have a temptation to quit. That's what's going on with Timothy as he's serving as a pastor, as he's serving as an elder. Paul is, is telling him, don't quit. I recognize the temptations and the pressures that you're facing. If you go back a couple verses, he's saying, and he's, he's reassuring Timothy, listen, you, however, you followed my teaching. You followed my conduct, my aim in life. You have been pursuing uh, these things just like me. And, and just like me, right, a godly person, or at least uh, an apostle trying to live a godly life, facing persecution pressure on every side as I minister the gospel, just like me, as you're following in that, you're experiencing the same kind of pressures. You're encountering the same kind of obstacles, and it takes its toll on you. I recognize that. But in the face of the false teaching, in the face 
of uh, the persecution, in the face of the despair that as you minister to people, people still disintegrate spiritually. Like they go from bad to worse. No good gospel change takes place in their life. And as you're facing these realities as a minister of the gospel, here's what I'm telling you and encouraging you to do. He's saying, don't quit. Don't give in to the temptation to quit in the face of persecution, in the face of false teaching, in the face of everything that you deal with in the city of Ephesus. Do not quit. Do not give up. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. Continue. Remain in it. Don't quit. Don't give in to the pressure. Stand fast. Stand firm in God's word. Your trust in it and your teaching of it. Don't quit on God's word. And I wonder if some of us here today feel the same thing in our own lives. Pressures, temptations, obstacles, distractions, relationships, frustrations, just lists of things to do. Maybe even doubts in the midst of all of that. Maybe even distorted ideas creeping in. Hearing from this news source and that news source or this podcast or this relationship. Right, People are constantly speaking into your life in an attempt to shift and, and shape your worldview. Your understanding of reality. Maybe you're feeling... The, the pressure to quit, to, to no longer remain as a person who trusts in and teaches and embraces the word of God as the central thing in terms of life and ministry. Circumstances can get overwhelming. Daily tasks can distract us. They, uh, technology, innovation, all the, 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 the things that we are progressing in in a society can fade can paint false hopes, and we can buy into these things and grab a hold of them. And all of that just leads us astray and can put pressure on us to just give up. Ah, what's the use? And quit. Paul's saying, don't quit. He's saying to Timothy, don't give up on it. Christian, the devil may discourage you. The devil may distract you. The devil may deceive you. But the call on your life is to continue, to remain. Don't quit on trusting in, teaching, embracing the word of God as the central point, the everything of life and ministry as a Christian. Why the scriptures, you ask? Why the word of God? What is it about this book here? What is it about this book that Paul says remain, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed? What is, the, it, what is it about this book, the 66 books within it, that stands taller, more unique, more beautiful, more powerful than anything else? Why this book? Well, he gives us the answer. He goes, 
Verse 15, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, these sacred writings, the book, the scriptures, guess what makes them what they are uniquely? There's an inherent power, a unique ability in this book, in these words, to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. No other book makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's this book. It's what you've learned and have firmly believed as taught and understood in this book that is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures save. That's why this book. Uniquely, the scriptures save. God's word has the unique ability to save those who hear it. That's why this book. You may know the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. He was a teenager who was on his way to church, unconverted at the time. It was snowing. Really? It was snowing. And uh, he couldn't make it to his typical place of worship where his family went. And so he found himself in what he called a primitive Methodist church. And he walked into the back and he sat underneath uh, the balcony in the back. And this guy was, uh, he, he didn't really have a fond opinion of this preacher. But he just kept saying over and over and over again. Repeating it. Because in his mind, according to Spurgeon, he really didn't have anything else to say. But he kept saying over and over again, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved. He's preaching the text. He's preaching the word, and he's calling on the people to look unto him and to be saved. And as he listened to that, he, was, he saw Spurgeon in the back and he pointed in the back and said, Hey, there's a miserable young man there. Some of you remember when your pastor did that to you, right? Look at that miserable young man in the back. He looked at Spurgeon and said, Look, look, young man, look now. Calling on him from the text in Isaiah 45. And he said this, I had this vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now I can never tell you how it was. There's a mystery to this. Why all of a sudden? Why now? How did this happen? He says, now I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe then I also understood what I was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. The hearing of the scriptures saves those who hear. It is the foolishness of preaching and teaching this book. You see, salvation is not a matter of us doing. Someone say amen to that. Salvation is not a matter of us doing. It's crazy 
from a human perspective to hear this, but understand that salvation is a matter of just hearing. Hearing the word of God about Jesus Christ proclaimed, preached into the ear, and embraced and trusted in the heart. That's what salvation is. It seems like foolishness to us. But what makes this book unique is that just the hearing of it in the ear of the human heart, that God does something miraculous, I don't understand it. It just, I saw it and I believed. I looked and I saw, and in one moment I believed. The book, it's powerful to save. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by what? The word of Christ, Romans 10. Do you remember that moment in your life? Do you remember your conversion? I highly doubt it was a stroll in the woods in your own private thoughts. Nobody ever got saved on a golf course. (laughs) You may have had one 35-foot putt in your life, but that's about it. Golf is where you realize you're a sinner, right? It was the word that you heard. The word of God. It's unique power. And what gives it such power, he tells us, all scripture is breathed out by God. So we're called to continue in the word based on its unique power, but also its unique nature. All scripture is breathed out by God. This is what we understand to be the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture is inspired by God. It has a unique essence, this book. And that essence comes from its author. The capital A author. Yes, there are human, lowercase authors that were carried along by the Holy Spirit in the penning of these words. Without getting into too deep our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration, the point is this is that it was the capital A author, God, who gave us this book. This is God's word. This comes from him. That's what gives it its saving power. That's what gives it its unique nature. It's God's book. It's his word. It comes from him. He is its source. And understand this, all of scripture is breathed out by God. Some would say, well, Well, I like Ephesians. That's what I do. I just hang out in Ephesians. That Leviticus, you know, like Chronicles, forget it, right? And we treat certain aspects or sections of the scriptures as different from one another. I get it. Everyone's got a favorite verse, right? Okay? Jesus wept. We all memorize that one, right? We all have these verses that are memorable to us, but it's all of scripture. Not just one section or another. But the word of God complete in, it, in, 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 uh, in the whole canon is inspired by God. It comes from him. This is revelation of himself to us. It has a unique nature. All of it, not some of it. But then he goes on to tell us that we're called to continue in God's word based on its unique benefits. He says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's beneficial. It's helpful. It's practical. You say, God's word, you know, it just doesn't intersect with my life. Lie. Fewy. 
That's Satan. And that's our own uh, weird perspective. No, God's word does. God's word is relevant. The text tells us that it is profitable. It's beneficial. What does it do? It teaches us. It reproves us. It corrects us. And it trains us in righteousness. Without going into four word studies here, here's the main point. The idea here is this, is that the word of God is beneficial to shape us in terms of right doctrine, what we should believe about God, and right living, how we should live in light of what we know about God to be true. It's theology and practice. It's both. What we should embrace and how we should live in light of that. And, and we have a positive like instruction that goes with that. We also have the negative correction. No, 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 not that. Not that. And so the scriptures are beneficial because they alone have a unique way of, of profiting us by helping us understand what the Bible teaches, who God is, and how we're to live in light of that. It trains us in righteousness, how to live according to the will of God. And only the scriptures give us this benefit. So when it comes to life and ministry, we don't need any gimmicks. We don't need any tricks. We don't need a new retreat center in Colorado to really bring us to God. I'm going though. You're like, what's wrong with Colorado? There's nothing wrong with Colorado point is, is we often think, eh, this kind of stale, I need something else to fill me, to train me, to teach me, to, to, to nourish me. We need to be more relevant by understanding where culture is at. Understand, yes, we should know our context, but we have everything right here, all the benefits therein. We don't need anything else. The scriptures are sufficient for life and for practice. There's nothing more that you need for your growth in godliness than the word of God and, of course, the spirit of God that does his work in the midst of it. All scripture is breathed out by God. And God is continually working out his saving purposes in his word. Right? You see the snow out there. Right? I was thinking about that this morning. The snow falls and it doesn't go back, sadly enough. Right? The snow falls from the sky. It doesn't return until about June. No, it melts in June. Isaiah 55 talks about this. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, listen to this, so shall my word be. That goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, these benefits bring about the very thing that God intends it to do. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's the word of God that comes from above. And brings about the very purposes of God in our lives to, of course, conform us to the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This should give you a great confidence in God. 
a great confidence in God's word. That it is God's word that is uniquely necessary and uniquely sufficient for your growth in Christ. It's God's word. It's this book. Moses knew this, didn't he? Deuteronomy 8 says to the Israelites, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. David knew this all over the Psalms, but surely Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And he goes on in Psalm 19. And of course, Jesus understands this. When he's about to endure the cross, John chapter 17, he prays this high priestly prayer for his disciples. He cries out to the Father. And what does he pray for them? He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our sanctification, Jesus prays for it. And what is his confidence and his understanding is that it would be a sanctification that would take place in the word. Jesus knows this. David knows this. Moses knows this. Do you know this today? For most of you, I'm sure that you would say, yeah, I know that. But again, I spent the last two years knowing that if I ate differently and worked out, something different would happen to my body. But every day, I neglected it. Every day, I knew two plus two is four. I know that if I eat like this and, and sit around like that, that I will feel tired and lethargic and, and sad. <laughs> but I'm going to keep eating that. And I'm going to keep doing nothing. But I know... I know God's word nourishes me, corrects me, reproves me. I know God's word is sanctifying me, that there's nowhere else to turn. I know it's sufficiency, but I'm still going to spend the first 30 minutes of the day in Facebook. I'm still going to neglect it. I'm still going to make excuses. I'm still going to orient my life around other things, including entertainment and endless responsibilities that I have. I'm still going to make excuses. I don't say this to be harsh with you. I say this to correct my own tendencies and to just be honest about my own struggles, even as a pastor, let alone a Christian, that I can easily know that this will speak to me in my weakness as a father, my weakness and inadequacy as a pastor. This will feed my soul. This will nourish me. This will deal with some of the anger in my heart, the anxieties that I feel, the lust that I'm tempted to. This will feed me, and I will find a way to do something else with my life and my time and my emotion. Somebody tracking with me there today? So we know it. The question is, what do we do? Well, given its necessity and sufficiency, I'm just going to tell you, immerse yourselves in the Word of God. Immerse yourselves. And I want to say it in two ways. Immerse yourselves in God's Word privately and publicly, both and. 
Immerse yourselves in God's word privately and immerse yourself in God's word publicly. So read it. Pray it. Sing it. Study it. Memorize it. On your own, in your prayer closet, whatever it is. By yourself, in solitude, in silence. Get immersed in the Word. So many of us are just like we're like that, that dry sponge and we're just eyelet dropping. Scripture in our life. Life is still quite dry and un, ineffective and unfruitful with just the eye drops every day. But imagine if we literally immerse ourselves into the full bucket of the Word of God and be soaked in Scripture. What kind of an effect that would have on our lives, given its power, given its nature, given its benefits. So do it. Do it at home with your family. I'm calling that private. That's private. By yourself, with your kids, with your spouse. Immersion. Get in the scriptures. If you want resources on family worship, we can put that into your hand. Fathers, I know how you feel. I know I should do this. I know I should be reading. I know I should be praying. But man, I don't know where to start. And every time I say, let's pray, I get my, the eyes roll and the, I have too much to do. Every time I say, let's get together and just enjoy the Lord, it's like pulling teeth. And somebody's, you know, how does somebody get punched during devos? I don't even know how that happens. But everything goes wrong in family devos, man, everything. So you give up, you're exhausted, you live in the shame of it. Guys, let's, let's be diligent. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed in the context of the home, fathers and mothers. And children, if you're here, don't resent the work of your parents to place before you the unique revelation of God to you. Don't push back on it. Don't tell me you just want to watch the next episode of Agent Carter. The scriptures are God's word to you. Don't neglect it. I'm sick of Agent Carter. I want to watch Mandalorian. I don't have control of my own house, man. Need another TV is what I need. In my closet. <laughs> my prayer <laughs> all right I'm done and you've been there right you know what happens when you have a steady ongoing diet of the scriptures in your private life you know how it just God sovereignly places scripture in your battle against sin doesn't he I'll never forget in high school when I stood before Faith Heritage and apologized for my temper tantrums. I thought I was big dog, big shot in basketball, and I thought I knew more than the coach. I mean, I did, but um, I didn't. I just, still there, it's residue, it's residue. And uh, I stormed off the court and quit my junior year, and I just felt such conviction, and I felt so enslaved in my emotions. I felt so lost, right? And it was 
God's word that came to me in the book of Job. And again, it, it's not a perfect interpretation because I was a hack in high school. But I saw Job's humility in the midst of something that he lost and something I felt that I lost. And he went before God and just, con- just went before him humbly. Lord gives, Lord takes away. And I remember standing before the school and saying, I'm sorry to the school. It was the word of God that prompted such humility in the face of of 400 students. My battle against lust in high school and college and how that affected our uh, relationship, Doreen and I. I'll never forget the shame that I would feel and the, just like, I'm, ru- I'm screwing this up. I'm, I'm losing something that I treasure and I need to be careful and I need to take heed to these things. And it was Isaiah 43, 18 that spoke to me like, like just like comfort blanket, just loved on me. He said, uh, you know, uh, do not forget the former things. Don't consider the things of old. Behold, I'm going to do something new. And again, what a disaster of an interpretation. It's a high school kid, college kid. But it was that understanding that God does a new thing. And I was thinking, well, God's going to do a new thing in my life. Well, he already did it in Christ, Amen. It's just a matter of appropriating those benefits that he gave to me. Anyway, I'm rambling. When you feel alone and unloved, it's Romans 5, it's 1 John 4. And this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us. Right when you're afraid, it was Joshua as a kid. It was Joshua. Do not fear. Don't be dismayed. Don't turn to the right or the left. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why does he keep saying that to Joshua? Because he's afraid. The scriptures minister to us. The Spirit of God uses it. So immerse yourselves in God's word privately. I'm going to try to be as fast as I can with this second part. I know time's ticking away. But we can't miss this, folks. It's not only home in your closet where God works by his Spirit. It's easy for us to think this way. After all, we've grown up in American evangelicalism. And rightly so, we've emphasized a moving away from religion and a move toward a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a wonderful thing that we've emphasized. Yes, one must have a personal relationship with Jesus. But when we come as American individuals and a constant emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus, we are missing out on the primary means by which God ministers his word to his people, and that is publicly, through the preaching of the word in the context of the local church. So while I say personal emotions, get at it, immerse yourselves privately, we must immerse ourselves publicly. The scriptures tell, scriptures tell us this. It tells Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. He tells Timothy in chapter 4, preach the word. How are you going to combat all this? In the context of the church, preach. Preach the word. In season and out of season. Preach the word. Proclaim. Herald. It was the church in Acts. Right? What did they do? They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers, to the fellowship. 
They met constantly. Why? Because God was giving grace through the preached and taught word of God to his people. God was sustaining their relationship with Christ through public ministry of the word. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you're like, he's talking to me. Guys, you is plural. We read all of our scriptures as individuals. He's talking about the context of the, of the local church, the body of Christ coming together. Let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly. How do I know? Look at teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and thankfulness in your hearts to God. Don't forget about the warning of Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin exhortation is always in the scriptures the word of God Hebrews 10 let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're going to see him. We shall be like him. What do we do? Public ministry of the word. Public ministry of the word. Encouraging one another. New Testament is clear. The public ministry of the word. Church history is clear. The, at the Reformation, the Presbyterians and the Baptists said, uh, 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 no, guys, Catholics got it wrong, right? Ordinary means of grace. Here they are. He says this, verse 96, ben, Benjamin Keach, a 17th century Baptist minister in his Baptist catechism. How is the word made effectual to salvation? Question 96. How is the word affecting salvation? It says this. The Spirit of God, there it is, Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Conversion, right? Growth. How? especially through preaching the word, the spirit is at work. That's how. And so at Renovation Church, this has been our hope and our labor for seven years. Amen? We could say seven this year. This has been our labor. Our worship times would be word-centered, that we'd read scripture, we'd sing scripture, we'd pray scripture, Scripture would, would be attached to the sacrament. I'm sorry, I just said a nasty word in a Baptist church. And the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And the scriptures would be preached. Scriptures would be preached. The word of God would be preached. It's because the preaching of God's word, the gospel, Christ is uniquely brought to bear on our minds and our hearts, and God is graciously at work in us through this time. Don't neglect this moment. Give yourselves to it. Immerse yourselves in it. Bring your Bible, old school. Bring a journal. Immerse yourself in it. Learn. God is teaching you. Be, be cognizant of other people around you in the midst of the ministry of the Word. 
In this moment, you have an opportunity unlike any other in the context of the week. You say, but I listen to Ligon Duncan on Tuesdays. Not the same. Praise God for podcasts. Not the same. There's something unique as the church gathers and celebrates the risen Jesus and hears the preached word by your leaders, your elders, that God works. God works. He's dispensing grace in the public gathering that takes place. And so Paul says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We're preaching Jesus every Sunday, every week. Him we proclaim. That why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. There it is. Why do we preach? Why do we preach Jesus? To present you mature in Christ. We labor in this as elders. We give our lives to this because we love you and because we believe that Jesus is going to do a miraculous work in your heart when the word is proclaimed. It's not from us. It's not from us. And anything good that comes in these sermons is only good because it comes from God. Tell me your sermons are boring. Tell me your sermons are long. Sick of them. Just want to go home. You could tell me they're too theological. They're too conceptual. They don't hit my Tuesday morning at 11.30. I don't understand how it applies. Fine. I'm not that good. But don't tell me that you don't need to hear the preach word. You could tell me you didn't like my sermon, but don't tell me you didn't need the word preached today. Preach the word is what we do. I don't like my sermons. The day is soon approaching. The day is soon approaching. When we see him, we shall be like him. How will we be prepared? By the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As he works in and through the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word. That's how God is at work changing us. That's how he's conforming us. The spirit and the word. It's God's word that is uniquely necessary and sufficient for your growth in Christ. So let's start 2020, another decade, with a renewed commitment to immerse ourselves in the well and source of God's infinite grace toward us to bring us to the day where we look at our Savior face to face. Let's give ourselves to this. Amen? Privately and publicly. God's word. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your work by your spirit through the word. We pray that even now that if there's someone here that does not know you, that they would hear the words of Isaiah 45, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. We pray that you would open their eyes and ears to see and hear Christ. We proclaim him, Jesus, his perfect work, his his perfect person. Save those who hear. And God, sanctify us as you prayed. 
Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.